Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Caribbean Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am grateful for my dialogue with Dr. Hilborn Watson. He is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at Bucknell University. And we are here to discuss his new book, Errol Walton Barrow and the Post-War Transformation of Barbados, the Late Colonial Period, published by University of the West Indies Press, 2020. Hilborn, I'm delighted to be in dialogue with you today. Very delighted to be in dialogue with you as well, Ari. It's a pleasure. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I'd like listeners to get an appreciation of what transpired in Barbados from the 1920s to the 1960s, this is what I refer to as the late colonial period. But this special emphasis on the period from the 1930s on. In the 1930s, late 1930s, was a period of upheaval, disruption, and rebellion in the colonial zone of the British West Indies. And there were what people have described as disturbances that erupted Uh, under pressure from below among the working class masses of rural and urban dwellers who toiled for a living, who did not own property, hardly any property. The franchise had not been extended and only a handful of people had the right to vote. In Barbados at the time, fewer than 10,000 persons had the right to vote and the right to vote was based on certain basic property qualifications, primarily an income qualifications. But it's interesting to note that when universal suffrage was introduced into Barbados under the representation of the People's Act of 1950, which took effect in 1951, the voting rolls exploded from about under 10,000 to about 100,000. It tells you then that the masses of working people did not have the right to vote. And this was part of the imperialist project to limit any form of what we might call popular participation in the political process through elections and so on. Labor organizations were not legal and normal at the time, so there was a lot of agitation uh, from below. And as I noted um, when we spoke last time, when we discussed the second volume, I looked at this work through the lens of what I would call working class interests and working class concerns, which means that in looking at the full spectrum of things, it's not that I ignored other areas or other interests, but I brought to the center what I think uh, had not been done in the very little, there's much that I should say, a good amount that's been written about the period, but hardly anything on what I would call um, contributions of Errol Walton Barrow. So I'm hoping that the readers will understand that it is important for the broad mass of people to be able to 
write their history, speak to their history, articulate their history, mindful that we don't, we can't construct the past, but to have organic intellectuals who have a sense of the importance of this process and who can then attempt to articulate issues and areas of concern from that vantage point. So the political changes, the social changes, the economic changes, the constitutional processes that um, develop in the, during that period are central. And I'm hoping that the reader will get some sense of appreciation because when I embarked on this work, I did not know much about that myself, not having been taught any of it in high school in Barbados and had to learn it on my own, so to speak. So I'm hoping that people, listeners will join me in developing and acquiring a sense of appreciation of the Senate, of the critical importance of that period, which coincided then with the, the depression, the 1930s depression, the outbreak of the Second World War, the continuation of that war, the end of the war, and then the British who, uh, who had become severely weakened, profoundly weakened by the processes that had begun to develop in the early 20th century and, and found themselves in a predicament. The outcome of the war left them much weaker than they had been, and therefore they had to seek to manage the processes of leading to what we call decolonization through internal self-government and establishing the parameters for that. But they sought to do it in order to control as much as possible rather than to make any direct transfer to the broad masses of the people because it was a society, Barbados still, as we were speaking of it, in which less than 5% of the population own most of everything in terms of real property, wealth, assets, and so on. And the British... Uh, project for managing what they call decolonization or what we call decolonization was to make sure that those people did not lose anything, but that the process would open up, at the, especially at the political level, for broader uh, representation and through the recognition of, 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 of political parties at a no level and through labor representation, but to manage it as tightly as possible. And that was what the British did. And they did a very effective job at it because the local leaders called the elite or the decolonizing elite saw themselves always as British. They did not see themselves in opposition. And even though they were, quote, anti-colonial in a formal sense and nominally anti-imperialist, they were never, ever anti-British. And this is a point that has to be made for this particular period. So it was more like an internal adjustment that took place rather than a radical or dramatic transformation. And I use the term transformation as an open-ended, complex, and very heterogeneous process so that we don't get to the idea that it was a process of transformation that occurred and came to an end and that was the end of it. No, open-ended, heterogeneous, and what I call non-totalizable. Huh? I'm hoping then that there is a sense of this from what I call a dialectical vantage point. Where do you situate this study vis-a-vis -vis previous scholarship on late colonial Barbados? Okay, the first point is that there we do not have many scholarly books on late colonial Barbados. It is not to say there's been no writing. A good deal of writing, a number of special conferences and, and, and seminars were held, and there were, pardon me, a number of, um, I must say, 
booklets and small and other compendiums that address some aspect of this. This is the first of its kind <clears throat> in terms of the scale and the scope, the range of issues address the attempt to center a leader who became uh, a very critical figure in the, this post-war process. And from that vantage point, or rather I should say, in addition to that, um, it maps the terrain from within what I might call the framework of political economy, rather than from a narrow notion of political science or any other academic discipline. And political economy is a discipline that studies the development of society through the, the lens of the social relations uh, of production. It understands the connection between the material and the non-material, and it seeks to elaborate <clears throat> processes of change and transformation as unfolding in what I might call a contradictory sort of context. Now, there are some books I have read for this study, a few, I should say, that looked at the, the period that I have covered here. But there were more, let's say, articles published by academics than books on the period, uh, many of which I found very useful. There are books on nationalism in the Caribbean. There are books on party politics and political development in the region. There are others that focus on what we might call the sociology of development. This is different. It's, it's framed within the context of political economy as an academic discipline and also as a way of viewing the world in, the political, in a political sense and sees the world uh, in, in the, the, the international environment as a kind of organized political space in which power and power relations are produced. Power is not given as a zero sum thing in which someone has it and someone lacks it. That is a very narrow, and I, I, from my vantage point, unacceptable way of viewing power and traditional studies have tended to view power through that lens, I do not. What is known about his lineage? Okay, two things, a number of things need to be uh, established here. On Barra's side, the, the mother's side, that's where the money, the wealth and the property existed. The father's side, there was hardly any of that. As a matter of fact, there's an argument that when uh, Barra's mother met the man who became his father, there was an assumption that his people were somehow perhaps better off, only to discover that there were more or less working people. The borrowed mother people, I, I sought to look at, to find literature that addresses exactly where and when they began to acquire property in land, as well as in commercial holdings. I didn't find that in the archives, as I, I think I mentioned to you when we had our first uh, session, that um, I might have, if not, uh, pardon me. When I started doing work at the, the Department of Archives in Barbados for this study, I asked for a meeting with a senior representative of the, at the archives, and he came out and he said, I don't know how you're going to do this work because we have hardly anything in here on Mr. Barr or his family. Uh, it's going to be a tough um, job for you, so to speak. But I'm saying that because there was not much by way of archival material 
on the background. I can tell you, however, that um, his grandparents were on his mother's side were reasonably well-off people. The name was O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L. Of course, the barrow comes from the father's side. And there were people who had sugar works, which would have been the equivalent of a sugar mill, grinding canes and making sugar. They had um, a small estate in the range of about 30 acres in the northern parish of St. Lucie in Barbados. And that was quite a holding for uh, a small black family because black families were were largely not people who had a lot of property or a lot of wealth. And they, they did diversify and they acquired commercial holdings in the urban region, which was in the city of Bridgetown, which is the capital of Barbados. And they were they rented out those, some of those properties and they earned income from them. The family uh, began to move increasingly away from that rural agricultural activity to the urban areas. But at the same time, um, some of them were known to have moved, traveled to the island of Tobago, which is the sister island of Trinidad and, and Tobago, and they manage agricultural activities, plantations there as well. Now, on the father's side, they were more into religion and one what one might call missionary work. But early, one of the interesting things about the Barrows family was that they had connections, and of course, they were ground rooted in Barbados, in Tobago, in St. Vincent, and as far as Jamaica. And there were people married across those islands and built what would might be called part of the embryo of a kind of Caribbean family, right? But those people were, as I said, property people. Barra's uncle, um, Charles Duncan O'Neill, about whom I'm sure we will speak uh, going forward. Uh, his family was sufficiently well off for his father to send him to Edinburgh University to study medicine. And this was just around and during the period, it's after the period of the, of the First World War. And he studied medicine there. He became um, a very outstanding student. He was very bright when he was in high school in Barbados. And his, his father was able to finance his education. That was a major factor telling you something about the family, you know, background, so to speak. But um, Errol Barrett, as we will note when we go forward, did not spend his early childhood around that family. We will get to that, right? But there was this fundamental gap between the economic and financial standing of the mother's family and the father's family. You alluded to Charles Duncan O'Neill. Uh, can you tell us more about him? Why is yes. he a seminal figure? He's a seminal figure for a number of reasons. Now, when he was studying, he was a very progressive man by outlook, motivation, and practice. Uh, when he was a medical student in Scotland, he became involved with the labor movement there, if you will, workers' movement, a labor organization. There was a guy there named Keir Hardy, K-I-E-R-H-A-R-D-Y, in Scotland, who was a leading figure in the labor and trade union movement. Mr. O'Neill got involved with them and worked closely with them. 
By the time he finished medical school and, and was ready to practice, he was so popular in the community called Sunderland that the community pleaded with him to become involved in local politics and promoted him to run for the city council. He ran and he won. This black man ran and won the seat on the Sunderland City Council. This was unusual for a place like Scotland, but this is a strictly working class environment. So there was a progressive disposition there. Now, he served on the city council. And in those days, of course, medical doctors did what we call home calls or home visits. And he did that in the community. And he wrote that he had not, he having grown up in Barbados where the level of impoverishment was extremely high. When he was in Sunderland, he did not see poverty as extreme in Barbados as he saw in Sunderland. And he would go and, you know, to deliver babies and would find people, of course, at the time living in homes with dirt flooring and no heating, no kind of heating at all, and always shivering cold, as it were. But they had to make makeshift make arrangements, you know, to heat their abodes. And he, co he collaborated with them. He worked with Kay Hardy in the Labour and Trade Union movement, as I said. And after a while, the, he had this urge to return to the West Indies. And on route back to Barbados, he spent time in the island of Dominica, a British territory, and he moved from there to Trinidad. It was in Trinidad that he became involved with the Working Men's Association and with labor and political forces as well. And he benefited a good deal from that exposure. He returned to Barbados in 1924 and founded an organization called the Democratic League. The Democratic League petitioned for all manner of changes, anti-child labor, universal public education for children from ages 5 to 14. Uh, he also promoted, uh, ran for office, won a seat in the Barbados House of Assembly, and um, agitated from on the inside for reforms to improve the lot of the masses of the people. He was not a controversial figure, but he was a guy who was very forthright, very clear, very articulate. And as a practicing medical doctor coming from a middle strata property family, you might say he had it made, right? He could definitely have taken himself away from the rough and tumble of everyday life and politics, settle for his medical practice, earn his income, and live a reasonably good life because he had the foundation for it. But no, he got directly involved to the point where um, he agitated for reforms across the board, as I mentioned. And I do recall reading where he said that uh, he'd learned the hard way in Barbados that if you are going to inspire the broad mass of working class people, of their role in history and the importance of becoming involved and not sitting back and waiting for change to come, you have to begin with a fundamental education program. You have to educate the masses rather than assume that you can simply go among them and preach and teach and they're going to respond.
because there was one statement uh, that sticks out in my mind where he said that this large numbers of extremely impoverished black people in Barbados would consistently, consistently say to him, but Mr. O'Neill, what do what did the white people in Barbados do to you? Are you always criticizing them? And he wasn't criticizing them as white people. He was criticizing them as business people, plantation owners, commercial owners, who controlled local politics because there was no universal adult suffrage at the time. And he was saying that the policies that they followed in conjunction with those of the colonial government work against the better interests of the broad mass of people and was not conducive to any upliftment or improvement in the condition. So he criticized them from a very concrete political vantage point, not because of something called race. But the broad mass couldn't appreciate that because they had been so downtrodden and beaten down that they and, and highly impoverished uh, that they didn't have apparently the energy at front to see the importance of what he was attempting to do. Now, there were some organic intellectuals, some people in the media and others who had served in the war who came back to Barbados and began to agitate and write and speak on behalf of the broad mass of working people. These are the ones I would call the organic intellectuals. But Mr. O'Neill combined his professional role as a medical doctor with his political involvement and worked very, very hard, brought the Working Men's Association branch into Barbados, connected that with this Democratic League organization that worked at the community level and worked from inside parliament. Right? And he was able to get some members of his organization elected to parliament even before he won his seat in parliament. Fortunately, it was 12 years after the Demo he founded the Democratic League that he died at the age of 57 in 1936 from cardiac arrest or heart failure. But he was an outstanding man, and Erebaro claims him as the mentor in his life. The man called himself a socialist. He became exposed to those ideas while he was in Scotland. He brought back this notion of democratic socialism from Barbados, and Errol Barra says, I was born a socialist at the feet of my uncle, Charles Duncan O'Neill. Can you tell us about Reginald Barrow, Errol's father? Where and when did he live? Can you describe his biography and legacy? What should we know about him? Okay, now let me begin by saying I met Reginald Barrow in the 1960s when he was wow. advanced in years. Wow. How did I how did I meet him? I studied at a high school now. Secondary education in Barbados at the time was essentially private. There were five of what they would call top rank, so-called grammar schools, Harrison College, Queen's College, the Lodge School, Combe Mare, and um a few others. And these were under the ambit of largely of the state, but you had to pay to attend those. I was not in, I did not attend any one of those. I attended a private school and it happened that the headmaster and owner of that school, his father and Errol Barrow's father, Reginald Barrow, were friends. They had both lived in New York, in Harlem, and the, in that critical period of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, and then they returned to Barbados when they were in advancing years, as I said. So I met him at that time because he was an outstanding man. 
He studied theology at Codrington College in Barbados, which was like a seminary for the study of theology and classics. And um, it was there that he got the formal training in theology and under the rubric of the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church in Barbados at the time was an extremely conservative, some might say it was a reactionary institution, <clears throat> highly racialized, <clears throat> pardon me, a church with um, branches across the island called parish churches, because it was the equivalent in England, Northern England, the, the Anglican Church in England is an established church. And the the um the Barbados equivalent was a like an offshoot of branch of, of, of that. And um what Mr. after Mr. when Mr. Reginald Barrett was a student, he was what you would have to call a radical student who interpreted theology through the lens of the interests of the broad mass of the people rather than through the sort of per, um through the 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 view of the church at the top. And his argument was how do you use religion or any other factor for the improvement of the lot of the broad mass of the population. And he had a run-in with one of the leaders of the church there, a very bigoted man from South Africa named Reverend Anstey, A-N-S-T-E-Y. And Anstey did not like him for his views or anything and always sought to put obstacles in his way. He always survived that. And after he graduated, he was assigned to different churches within the Anglican establishment. But he always used the pulpit as a place to talk about change, oppression, racism, domination, discrimination, and the Anglican church did not like that. Now, let me broaden this a bit, Ari. In the Anglican Church, in my time growing up in Barbados, there were special pews. You know, these would be like the rows at the front where only whites could sit because they paid for them. And that was done to make sure that there was no popular mixing with blacks in the church, right? They bought the pews, it was called, and that's how it was run. In every parish in Barbados, that was the norm, even to the time when I was in high school. Of course, that broke down along the way. I don't know exactly when. So Mr. Reginald Barrow, trained as a theologian, he'd also spent time in neighboring islands like St. Vincent and Ariapu of Grenada. And he, wherever he went, in preaching the gospel, he never kept politics and the questions of the rights of the oppressed out of the picture. So he was, in this, so he was assigned to the St. George Parish Church, he did it there, they threw him out. He went to the St. Lucie Parish Church, he did the same thing, they threw him out. Wherever he went, the Anglican Church establishment worked against him. And then he got a job as a principal of one of these, quote, leading grammar schools located out in the parish of St. Andrew, where I was born in the uh, village of Belle Plaine near the Atlantic coast. And while there, he decided that as headmaster, and by the way, bear with me, the Allen School was founded in the 18th century to educate, quote, seven white boys by a man named um, Sir George Allen, who was a, an Englishman, a plantation owner uh, in the parish of St. Andrew. And 
that was how it operated until gradually things began to change. When Mr. Barrow, uh, in 1920 there about, uh, was assigned, was given the job as principal of the school, so he would not be preaching as, as, as the norm, he decided that change had to come. And what he and his wife did, Barrow's mother, was to go through the community and talk to the working class, poor working class black people. So if you have a son or daughter you would like to attend secondary school, let us know. We will set up tutorials for them or what in, or what in Barbara, this was called lessons. And they would go and they would be tutored by him and his wife in the fields that were necessary for them to pass exams. And it was remarkable that when he got there and there were few less than two dozen kids in that school by the time they threw him out of that job he had brought in dozens of working class boys and girls and the anglican establishment didn't like it much either so he was let let's call him a rebel he was a rebel across the spectrum after his work in the school um became too much for the system to bear because the system had to finance the administration, the staff, and what have you. They threw him out of that job, and he got a job in the U.S. Virgin Islands in St. Croix to go there as a reverend. And he said, well, in a way, they did me a favor because I was, I was thrown up because I earned more money, and that's where... Uh, before they left, Errol Barr was born in 1920. So it was as a baby that he, his wife, and all the kids traveled to St. Croix, where he then established himself. And there in St. Croix, he got involved with the trade union movement <laughs> as a, a reverend under the Diocese of Puerto Rico. And the, he criticized the U.S. governor of St. Croix, and they threw him out of St. Croix. And he took a boat and ended up going to New York, left his wife and kids in St. Croix. And from there, they returned to Barbados. And that's where Errol Barrow grew up and he lived there until he was about six to seven years of age, returned to Barbados. And his father was not visible and present in his life at that time, right? Because he was born in 1920. By 1926, he goes back to Barbados from St. Croix and his uncle, Charles Duncan O'Neill, had by that time established the Democratic League for two years. So it is important to see this kind of development of an infant. And um, then he completed his secondary, his primary education there, and then went to secondary education in Barbados. But his father was a what I would call a stalwart, a man of the cloth and of the struggle who never allowed religious ideology to dominate his sense of political responsibility or commitment. And that was too much for the Anglican Church to hold to, to stomach at any point. Can you tell us about Errol's mother and siblings? Yes. Now, Errol's mother, as I said, um, she is from the, from the family with the money. She was always described as a very kind, generous, and gracious woman. She was educated in the context of Barbadian society. She played the piano. She was artistic and creative and followed work very closely with her husband. She did not reject him because he was relatively poor by background when compared with her and her family. 
So it was out of that love and interest of, as a human being. And she collaborated with him. I would say, before I talk about siblings, that some of his the siblings, some of her siblings never liked the fact that she was married to this rabble-rousing, radical man. They didn't like it, but that was her husband. It was obvious that she loved him. And um, there was three daughters, two sons, Errol, and he had um, a senior brother, and um, he had um, three sisters. One lived in Trinidad for some time, and another spent more of her time uh, in Barbados. One became a nurse. She became uh, Dame Nita Barrow, became world, known worldwide, a very um, productive, energetic, caring woman who took her work into the community. And much like Errol Barrow, was very sympathetic to much of what he was about. But she certainly was not what you might call a political leader. But if you bear in mind that when Barrow returned to Barbados with his mother and siblings, sooner than later, his mother emigrated to New York where she joined her husband. So Errol Barrow, you might say, was raised by maternal people, aunts, right? And um, that made a profound impression on him, not one in which he became, let's say, um, disgruntled. There's no evidence based on what I have read of Errol Barrow being an unhappy boy growing up. Uh, he became very politically conscious at a fairly early age. There was this um, Jamaican leader of the, um, <clears throat> the name Marcus Garvey. You might have heard the, the mm -hmm. name Marcus Garvey, yes. Universal Negro Improvement Association, UNIA, uh, who operated in New York, was born in 1886 in Jamaica. He immigrated to the United States and sought to, did a lot of very important work trying to raise the ideological awareness and political consciousness of the large mass of oppressed uh, black people in the United States. And in 1937, Mr. <coughs> he, he, he actually visited, Marcus Garvey visited Barbados and tra traveled from the the seaport where the ship landed up to what was called the Queen's Park. This is a big park in Barbados to give a talk. And Errol Barrow in 1937 was 17 years of age. And he said he attended the lecture because at that time his family had moved into a house on a street named Crumpton Street, which is less than a quarter of a mile from the park because I passed there regularly when I was a schoolboy. And he said that he went over to hear Mr. Garvey speak. And he said that there was something Mr. Garvey said that left a permanent impact on him. He said, the, Mr. Garvey said, the problem with black people is that they go to bed too early and wake up too late. 
right? It was not really true. I think it was an exaggeration because the broad mass of working people had to be had to toil, whether it was in the fields, in the rural areas of Barbados, or in commercial or related enterprises. But that was his way of saying the need to be more energetic, to become more active and so on. And he said that stuck with him. And from then on, he decided he could live on five or six hours of sleep per night. <laughs> that there was so much more that he needed to do, you know, so to speak. So, yes, this, this context of Barra's de early development is extremely important, not only for make, ma mapping the terrain, so to speak, but for putting different pieces of the puzzle together to get a sense of some of the shaping factors and influences, you know, in Mr. Bauer's life. But he became close to his uncle, hmm? and uh, the uncle died in 1936. Bauer was born in 1920, so it is obvious that when he was 16, he lost his uncle, who was this towering figure in his life. And we don't hear much uh, as said, except when Barrow was interviewed for an article that was published in a book on Caribbean leaders by the Jamaican journalist. And in there, Barrow talks about the central role his uncle played in his life. Uh, it is possible that it might be somewhat exaggerated, but for him, it was seminal, it was critical. Can you describe yes. Earl Barrow's childhood education and upbringing? Well, okay. As I said, <clears throat> he spent the first six years of his life in St. Croix in the U.S., what became the U.S. Virgin Islands. Remember that the what became the U.S. Virgin Islands had been, up to 1917, the Danish, Danish territories. Denmark had gotten into this, you know, this business of colonizing lands and control those territories. And in 1917, as the World War was closer to an end, the Americans approached the Danes and said, we would like to buy these islands. And the Danes said, they are not for sale. And the US said, if you don't sell them, we're gonna take them. Which do you prefer? He said, okay, okay, okay. You know, we can reach an agreement. <laughs> And they reached an agreement, and they were sold. There was a guy by the name of Lansing who was U.S. Secretary of State at the time. And some of his advisors said, so, Mr. Secretary, what about the people who live in these islands? He said, we don't give a damn about them. We're buying these islands. If they want to leave, they could leave. But we will own the lands, and we will own them. They will have to be operating under the American rubric, under the American mandate. And that was the disposition and attitude of, you know, people in the state at the time about those territories. Now, um, when they returned to Barbados and he was age six, he attended elementary school um, in Bridgetown. He did well in elementary school, transitioned to secondary school, he did well there and did the typical thing which they put in the heads of colonial subjects, mainly, you know, traditional studies, the classics, you know, the Latin and the Greek and the ancient history and so on. And uh, when I was in high school, you know, I chose what was called the path of modern studies. I did Latin and history 
and French and literature and economics and so forth, because I had an idea of what I really wanted to go in life. So he won a scholarship. He did well in high school, a scholarship to go on to this Codrington College where his father studied theology. And he made that decision because it was much in keeping with the colonial education under the British moral, the moral epistemology of, of British imperialism. You educate subjects in people called subjects in the colonies. My first passport, which I got in 1965, Barbados became independent in 1966. It says subject of the British Empire. <laughs> I still have that passport, by the way. If it were out, I would show it to you here, right? Now, subject, not citizen, subject. Because we were not citizens, we were subjects, right? So uh, he studied the classics, and it was not, the educational system, Ari, was not about our societies. I never learned anything about Barbados or the British Caribbean or the Caribbean at large other than what represent, characterize the area in terms of what I call the fauna, the realm of the etc., not the people with their lived experiences. Contextually, I note about Trinidad as the land of the hummingbird. Right? I learned about Trinidad as a place with a pitch lake and oil, natural resources. Outside of that, they had people of African descent and Indian descent, or South Asian descent, largely, and some Creoles of European background. Jamaica, mountains and coffee and stuff. The people, secondary, always. Every island, I know more about landscape, geography, than about the lived experiences of people. You heard about political figures almost in isolation. So Barrett came up in that. This is how the moral epistemology of imperialism operate to shift the attention away from the struggles and activities of the dominated people and onto the landscape and then the centrality of Britain. I grew up as a kid believing that Britain was the most powerful country in the world and if it went to war, it would beat anybody, the Americans, the Europeans, everybody. You couldn't be superior to the British. That's how we were educated. All my education in literature was about Shakespeare and British writers. All my education in history was about wars and conflict to the point where I believed that war was something in human nature. When I studied Latin, I studied Virgil, Enid, book one, book six, book four, book 12, about Arma, Virumki, Kano, I write about men and arms, always the clashing and playing of arms, war, 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 from the Tudors through the Hanoverians and then continental Europe from the Thirty Years' Wars into the 19th century. That was the history I was taught, nothing about the Caribbean. The same would have applied to Errol Barrow, so that he was going to go study classics, right? Ancient studies, so to, so to speak, not that there's nothing of any merit to, to be had from studying the classics, but by golly, when is there going to be an attention to the society of which you were part? Knowledge of it is not communicated. It is therefore considered to be secondary, marginal, or unimportant. And I left Barbados in 1965 knowing very little about the place. And that was intentional and deliberate. If you're going to produce colonial subjects who are going to internalize the values and institutional arrangements of the 
the empire and imperialism and see it as something worthwhile. That they have been colonized was not a bad thing, so to speak. So this would have been the context for Barrow's education. He did well, as I mentioned to you. And when the time came to go to Codrington College to study classics, the war was breaking up. And his aunt packed his suitcase with everything and said, here, everything is ready for you tomorrow when you go off to Codrington College. And he said, I am not going to Codrington College. I decided to join the Royal Air Force, the British Royal Air Force, because, quote, England needs me more than Codrington College. Here is the colonial mind speaking. England needs me more. And he joined the Royal Air Force, got his initial training in Canada, crossed the Atlantic, went to England and served as a pilot in the Second World War in uh, Europe. Can you tell us about the British colonial attempts to organize a confederation of Barbados and the Windward Islands in 1875? Okay, now... This is an interesting point. Here, here is the what I think is central about that. Harry. For the British, you know, controlling, they say, owning possessions in the Caribbean, an area with a large number of small, very small, tiny, infinitesimally tiny islands, right? And managing these spread over a good part of the Caribbean Sea was not a very easy thing. Do you set up an independent administration in each one of these? How do you finance it? A place like Montserrat that had a few thousand people, how do you raise the revenues to support all of this? So for the British, the time came when they decided it was time to quote, rationalize the administration of colonial possessions in the, in the West Indies. And they felt that an effective way would be through a confederation, so to speak. Now, around that time, when that matter was raised in Barbados, the Barbados plan to, people say the plan to class, the agro-commercial capitalist interests were not impressed. Why? Now, they were narrow in their thinking to begin with. And what occurred... <clears throat> in that particular moment, was that this seemed to have spearheaded certain kind of agitation that spoke negatively about a confederation. I remember my paternal grandmother, when I was oh, 13 years or so old, and they began to discuss federation as an option or as the option, she would sit me down and talk to me. She says, you know, federation is a, is a terrible thing. It brings riots and it brings burning down lands and stuff, a lot of violence. We don't want federation. And, I, and this was in for the 50s. And I'm wondering, why would they be promoting something that is going to bring on that kind of activity? At the time in the 1870s, and this point needs to be emphasized, I'm glad you asked this particular question. Barbados as a colony had developed in a somewhat peculiar relationship to other British colonies in the Caribbean. From very early, when its constitutional foundation was being established, it had a constitution 
and, and remember the 1620s, 1630s, 1640s. In the 1640s, what happens in England? There is the execution of Charles the first, and Britain underwent something called an interregnum. This is a period between the end of this monarch, the monarchy here, technically, and the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 under Charles II. And in that particular period, Oliver Cromwell and the Roundheads actually ran England between 1649 and 1660, 11 years or so. And it was in this time that the constitution of Barbados was developed. And according to what I have read and from archival sources, the Barbadian planters, because there were these white folk who had come over from England and set up plantations on the island of Barbados, and they were royalists. They supported the monarchy, and they did not like this Cromwellian interregnum, so to speak. So they tried to keep Barbados outside of control by the Cromwellian forces, though it was still under you know, British domination as a colony. And in that context, in the context of that moment, um, the Cromwellian forces had dispatched, you know, forces to Barbados, to quell whatever was going on. It was not a very pleasant outcome. But by the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 under Charles II, things became, as it were, like more normalized. But Barbados was said to have had an independent constitution that did not require it to go back to the British Parliament for everything they wanted to change. So that notion of independence was sort of seared into the ideological consciousness of the colonial administration in Barbados. Now, it turned out that that idea was also popularized by Errol Barrow during the time when Barbados was talking about independence in the 1960s. But if we stick with the Federation, here is something else we need to look at in order to contextualize this moment and this process. When the Second World War was coming to an end, the British recognized that they would not be able to control the empire they had built. And therefore, they began to make certain adjustments. In 1946, the very year following the formal end of the war, the British colonial office in London issued something called a white paper, a formal government document on what they called the future of the colonies. Within two years after that, they issued another white paper, this time called the future of the territories. They have changed the nomenclature from colonies to territories, implying that the territory perhaps has a somewhat more elevated status and standing in the colony. Within a year of that moment, the British summoned two Montego Bay, Jamaica, delegates from the British territories to talk about the future of the territories in something called a closer association arrangement. And that is what led over oh, 11 years with laying the foundations for what became the Federation of the West Indies. This was to be an organization 
that would bring together 10 territories hmm, under a common government, a federal government, that would control the politics, the administration, and manage the business and economic activities of the colony. But these were very impoverished lands, and there was a sense among the people running those islands, <laughs> these elites, the, the Manlis and the Bustamantes in Jamaica, the um, Adamses in Barbados, the ones in Trinidad, in St. Lucia, in St. Kitts, Antigua, Dominica, and, and so on. Uh, each of them wanted to be, let's say, the head honcho in the territory. And they were not very favorably disposed to a, fed, a federal government with a very strong and powerful central administration. They wanted the bulk of the power to devolve to each unit territory with a weak central federal government. And they asked the British to fund lavishly the Federation by putting forward as much money as would be necessary for the Federation to function effectively, which the British did not do. And I don't think they could have afforded to do it I also think that it was politically problematic for them since they had colonies in Africa and other places and people might have been making similar demands because the British always saw the West Indian territories as the medium, the length through which to look at the development of colonial policy after the war wherever they had colonies. Now, in that particular context, um, when the Federation was finally established in 1958, it lasted a short four years. It was dissolved in 1962 because of internal wrangling. Jamaica, the largest member of that group, Guyana, British Guyana, did not join the Federation. It's located in South America, but always saw itself somewhat outside of that, and it was not considered to be a part of it, and the British had intervened in 1953 basically to overthrow the elected government under Chedi Jagan, the People's Progressive Party. And so, so the turmoil in Guyana was such that Guyana did not become a part of the Federation. Also, uh, there was some opposition in Guyana among the South Asian community, which was the largest segment of the population, to <coughs> join the Federation and quote, to be submerged in a sea of blackness since all the other islands were predominantly black populations. It was an ethnic issue. <laughs> Pardon me. Now, um, so the British tried to centralize political decision-making power in the Federation in the position of a, an appointed governor general who was appointed from Britain to lead the Federation. They had an elected House of Representatives in which member countries had candidates who stood for election to the Federal House, and when they were elected, they went to Trinidad, which was the headquarters of the Federal Government. Um, Barbados, Jamaica, all of them sent representatives. But for Jamaica in particular, they never saw the Federation as the number one priority, and therefore none of Jamaica's top leaders wanted to leave Jamaica and go serve 
in the federal government in Trinidad because it would have taken them away from the center of action at home. Now, the British had also given a nod to Jamaica that if they decided to leave the Federation, no punitive measures would be you know, implemented against them. And the fact that the British did not spend a lot of money on the on the federal venture, the fact that they adopted a strategy that gave greater powers, especially over the purse, to each territory <coughs> rather than to the federal government, the fact that most of the people who went on to serve in the federal legislature were not the top leaders, tells you that it was not viewed as a priority because the top leaders wanted to be at home to run things on the domestic level. So <clears throat> when the Federation ended, the year before it ended, the British increased the powers of the Governor General at the expense of the Federal House of Representatives, which is the legislative body. And that was another signal that they did not treat the Federation with the prayer, with the sort of, uh, <clears throat> let's say, with the, they did not treat it as a very serious venture. For them, it was useful to bring these islands together in a venture to help manage the affairs of the territories as opposed to spending lavishly on each territory in any case. And by that measure, it was more for administrative purposes than it was because they had a, an abiding commitment. The fact that the Federation was supposed to become independent as a unit, one government managing these territories, again, for financial, administrative, and other costs. Um, it, the, the, the aims of the British and some of the visions of the local people were not on the same plane, so to speak. And then the Federation collapsed in 1962. Its end was almost foretold in the way in which it was constructed. What was the Bush experiment? Can you describe its legacy? What is called the Bush experiment? There was a governor of Barbados by the name of Sir Grattan Bush, B-U-S-H-E. Um, <clears throat> during the post-war decolonization process in Barbados, he was governor. And since, as I mentioned, the British wanted to make sure that there was nothing taking place in the decolonization process that threatened the established order. The British <clears throat> appointed him to head that process in Barbados, leading to greater self-government, more what you might call managed internal autonomy. And from the point of view of the British, it was to be an administrative process. It was to address a, ver a variety of issues, including planning for development <clears throat> going forward. It was to lay the foundation for internal self-government, to broaden the powers of the elected legislature, because by 1940, <clears throat> I did not mention this, after Errol Barra's uncle died in 1936, his organization called the Democratic League morphed into another organization called the Progressive League. And by 1940, it morphed, that morphed into something called the Barbados Labour Party. 
So you had the origins in the Democratic League, the morphing into the Progressive League, and then the Arbeziskeva Party. And in that context, you also had the new legislative processes that came from the recommendations of the Moyne Commission you asked me about last time, uh, for recognizing political parties more broadly, um, electoral politics, trade union, trade union reform, labor reforms, educational reforms, whatnot. And this was what the Barbados Liberal Party uh, began to manage under Grantley Herbert Adams and the party. Now, there were progressive people, radical people, some revolutionary types in the party, the Barbados Liberal Party, and some very con mainstream center-right political figures, right? Grantley Adams was definitely not qualitatively a progressive man, though he his, his people like to promote him as such, and we can talk about that if it comes to it. But um, <clears throat> under the Bush ex experiment, it was like a reform program to see how the decolonization process would work in Barbados, to learn from it, to see it would be applied to other British islands in the Caribbean. And also the British had an idea that if this thing worked very well in Barbados and the West Indies, then something based on a similar model could be extended to places in Africa, for example. Now, this stuff I came across when I was looking at material at the archives. So the Bush experiment then was, was strategic for managing decolonization to make sure that nothing went wrong, that nothing uh, unforeseen could come up and wreck the foundation of the economy based on white ownership and white economic hegemony, but it was also to make sure that the transition occurred in which representative government became the norm, the qualifications for voting would change, and by time a larger number of people qualified to vote, and that came with the 1951 introduction implementation of the Representation of the People's Act, which was the basis for universal doubt suffrage Barbados. So the Bush experiment was a tactical mechanism for harnessing and managing decolonization in a way that was consistent with British interests, because the Americans had already begun to tell the British, you have to give self-government to these people. Uh, you have to bring them closer to some kind of autonomy and independence, but make sure you handle it in a way that does not really lead to chaos and disorder in the region because we will not tolerate it, right? So that's where I would locate the Bush experiment named after Sir Grattan Bush and a commission of leading political figures and others were put, to, put together to facilitate that. In your reply, yeah. you alluded to Grantley Adams. Can you say more about him? Can you describe his legacy? Yes. Grantley Adams... Uh, was born into it. His father was a school teacher, a school headmaster, as they would have said in Barbados, a school called St. Giles Boys School, which was um, <clears throat> well known in Barbados for producing a number of people who rose to prominence in a variety of fields, was in the more urban areas, suburban areas, which were Rumbushtown. Riley Adams grew up in that family. And Grantley Adams himself <clears throat> was an intelligent young man. 
he went off to Oxford University to study and studied law. While he was in England, he, like all of the other types from the colonies that gravitated to Britain to study, met a lot of younger people, a lot of contemporaries out of Africa and, and the Caribbean, right? Um, <clears throat> and while he was there, since he was not politically radical in his outlook, he associated himself with more centrist and more conservative types in England. And he actually, when he came back to Barbados, <clears throat> had the nerve to say that the greatest man in the world was some man named Gladstone who became a British uh, minister. This is in direct contrast with Errol Barrow's uncle, Charles Duncan O'Neill, who gets involved with labor, trade union politics in England and joins a socialist movement. Grandy Adams comes back to Barbados from Oxford University, having played cricket up there and studied law and whatnot. And he basically said the socialists had nothing to offer anybody, of any, nothing of any merit to offer anyone. So he never associated himself with the radicals, progressive, or socialists in England when he was pretty conservative by his own disposition. When he came back down to Barbados, he got involved in politics also. And as a lawyer, he did not find it very easy to make a living. And one of the jobs he took, he represented something called the Agricultural Society and wrote for an organization, a paper that they put out, which would have been a conservative uh, script, if you will, from the point of view of agro-commercial business, where a handful dominated everything, the politics, economic life, and everything in the society. And some say that was because he had to make a living. But when he was forced by circumstances beyond his control to appear to take a more open-minded and so like a more progressive stance, especially in the 1940s and going forward. Now that's the period when the British West Indian labor and trade union interests began to gel and to come together. And they held a big meeting in Barbados in 1945, where they founded an organization with the name the Caribbean Labor Congress. CLC. And the Labour Congress, when it convened in Barbados in 45, bringing people from Guyana, Trinidad, as far west as Jamaica and Barbados and Grenada and what have you, it was a major accomplishment to pull that off at that time. And the conference concluded with a communique. They issued a communique in which Grant the Adams, uh, which Grant, uh, I'm sorry, in which Grant the Adams uh, is listed as a speaker, and Grant the Adams made a statement that was profoundly significant. Although he would backpedal shortly after, and I'll tell you about that. He said, and I'm quoting him: "The only solution to the problems of the Caribbean is the creation of a Caribbean socialist Commonwealth to address." the real pressing needs and concerns of the region and the people. Socialists. That is the communique issued by the Caribbean Labour Congress. It was progressive and radical in some in a number of ways. Now, <clears throat> that is significant at a number of levels if you consider the time period. 
and the changes that are coming in the wake of, of the Mine Commission report. Right? Although the Mine Commission report was not a revolutionary document or anything, they said that these were colonies, sugar colonies, they produced sugar, they should keep producing sugar, that manufacturing was not on the horizon for them and so on. Uh, 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 a very British state and capital inspired idea and doctrine. Now, <clears throat> I say this because three years later, Bradley Adams, who now is being overtaken by forces he cannot control and must begin to speak on behalf of the progressive working class forces that are the you know in 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 the, in the country, um, he. While he was in Parliament in the 30s when Barra's uncle, Charles Duncan, O'Neill was there, he never supported one initiative that the Democratic League put forward for improving the lot of the masses. He voted against them consistently. <laughs> but then by the mid-40s, when things are changing in a more progressive, radical direction, he's being overtaken by events, and he seems now to join the movement by talking about a socialist commonwealth. Well, three years later in 1948, remember the United Nations was founded in, in the aftermath of the war, 1945, Adams is appointed by the British government to serve on a special delegation that attended the first meeting of the new United Nations that was held in Paris, France. And he's a member of this British delegation, and he's uh, leading Barbados at the time as well. Well, in that at that meeting in Paris, he got up and lambasted all the radical, revolutionary, progressive, Marxist, communist leaders of the trade union and working class movement across the British Empire from Asia to Africa to the Caribbean. And the people in those countries said, who on earth appointed this horrible man to speak for us? Who is he to speak in our names? We don't respect him. We don't appreciate anything that he has had to say. The key point here, Ari, is in 1945, we need a socialist commonwealth. And in 1948, he denounces all the socialists and all the radicals and stuff because the British appointed him to their delegation official delegate, because they knew he was a lackey for the British Empire. It is interesting that at no time in all of my reading and studying did Gratley Adams devote any time to talking about Africa and the struggles of the people in Africa who were under colonialism. Never, never. At one point, at one point, uh, when South Africa established apartheid in 1948, King George VI, in the aftermath of that, to make a statement of the British support for apartheid, made a decision to go to South Africa on a safari. And the West Indians at large screamed out against that, saying, how dare the King of England send this kind of message? The Africans are being dehumanized, destroyed, killed, thrown off their lands and put in hovels, and he is going to go to South Africa. That's a political statement of support for apartheid. The members of the Barbados House of Assembly, and I'm saying this to you, said, no, we totally oppose the king traveling to South Africa. And asked Adams to send a note to London opposing it, and he refused. 
He said, you could say whatever you want. This is a decision of the crown. You can't tell them what to do. You may as well learn to live with it. Well, they were not happy. That's where he stood you know, on those issues. It is also noted in one article I read published by a guy who was a retired political science professor at, um, was at the University of the West Indies, Barbados. And he said basically that as the constitutional decolonization process was taking shape under the Bush experiment, and the London was more prepared to make more changes of adjustment than people anticipated, Grandy Adams basically told London, the colonial office, go slowly with this decolonization thing because I don't think these people are ready for self-government. They're not really ready. A very reactionary position to take. So he revealed himself. And you will discover furthermore from things we might, might, might add here going forward that he um, was the ringleader in the anti-communist movement in Parliament in Barbados, contributing in part to the breakup of the, the Barbados Labour Party that led to the formation of the Democratic Labour Party. And he was always using a lot of Cold War anti-communist rhetoric, accusing Arabara and his friends of being communists and what have you, which they were not at any time. And in that particular context, <clears throat> he also was the ringleader in the breakup of the Caribbean Labour Congress be, be founded in 1945 and before 1960, it is in ruins and he consistently sought to destroy it. Right? We can talk about that you know, going forward. And that was very much in keeping with American Cold War and British Cold War objectives. So while he became a prominent figure and the first to lead Barbados under universal self-government as head of the Barbados Labour Party, becomes the premier of Barbados in this decolonization process under the Bush experiment, uh, he was a leading figure, but from my vantage point, he was not a radical, he was not a revolutionary. A lot of his supporters want to say that that, that is because they haven't done the work, they haven't looked at the archival material, and whatever they cherry-picked to defend him does not stand up to close scrutiny. There's a position I will defend before one or all of them at one and the same time. Can you tell us about, about the short-lived Federation of the West Indies? How did this play out? And what does this teach us about Barbados in the pre-independence period? Okay. Now, as I said, you, when, when I answer the other, other first part of that question, the Federation lasted a mere <clears throat> four years. The demise of the Federation was foretold in the very structure of the Federation. A weak central federal government and strong governments in the unique territories that made up the Federation. Huh? Okay. So you can't run a Federation in a meaningful way if each territory that makes it helps to make up the federation has more power over budgetary matters and so on than the federal government. It's just not going to work. Now, the Americans did not like the idea of a strong federal government either, because they were pushing their noses into everything that was happening in the British West Indies. They did not want any of the more progressive or any form of labor unions to play any major role in the government in these territories. It did not want um, any radical political forces to be involved in the politics and government of the territories either. And the British then promoted a weak federation 
And as I said, the, the death of it was foretold in the very way it was it was organized. Um, budgetary matters were always central. Remember, you're dealing with small islands largely, not a mu much by way of revenues. And the way to raise revenues through taxation, you have a very large mass of poor working class people who rely on agricultural work, which was more seasonal around sugar, secondary, low wages, low wages as well for commercial workers. Uh, people working in the public bureaucracy earn a little more, but they did not do very much better. So the revenue base was fairly limited, and there was a long history of extracting from the colonies resources to benefit the United Kingdom. So uh, there was a lot of emphasis on immigration, uh, people to go abroad and work and hopefully remit that was a big thing. If you go back to the Panama Canal project around the First World War, West Indians, including Barbados, Jamaicans, Jamaica contributed the largest contingent of workers on the Kamal project from the West Indies, followed by Barbados, number two, and other British territories, and even some French territories, and the Dutch and others, and even the Virgin Islands, like St. Croix, contributed you know, small numbers of workers to the to the, to the um, canal project. But re relying on remittances had been a very major thing consistently to maintain the colonies. Remittances that helped to hold households and families together and remittances, uh, portions of which would go into the public uh, fund to be distributed to the returnees after they had worked abroad and come back so they would not be, uh, you know, penniless and so on. And the lack of, uh, of significant budgetary resources, given the problems of the territories and the size of the territories and so on, all these things worked against, um, you know, a, a federal venture that was well-funded or that could be well-funded domestically. I had the international dimensions, as I mentioned, the American position, the British position to weaken the central government, give more power to the governor general appointed by them, and less to the legislative body and government uh, elected by the people, so to speak. So it was a kind of mixed message the British were sending out from the beginning. And when the Federation ended, then uh, Jamaica, of course, before it ended, withdrew. Eric Williams, who was leading Trinidad and Tobago at the time, said, there were 10 original territories in the Federation. Jamaica withdrew. And then someone said, well, let the nine remaining territories seek to build a federation. And Eric Williams said, one from 10 equals zero. <laughs> in other words, don't count on me and Trinidad to lead any federation of nine. Trinidad then said, well, we're finished with this. Then there were eight. And then something was tried, being tried to salvage the little eight, then that had dropped out, then there was a little seven. It was a joke after that. It was never going to be a strong federal venture in the first instance. Huh? That was not going to happen. So the, the collapse was foretold in the very origin, as I said, in the process leading up to it. And um, it became a memory in 1962 when it was dissolved by, quote, Her Majesty's government. Why did St. Lucia and other neighboring islands fear that an independent Barbados might be too threatening and powerful, too powerful? 
But okay, they did not begin with the idea that an independent Barbados would be too powerful. They began with the idea that with Trinidad and Jamaica leaving the Federation in that mm -hmm. moment of rupture, that a venture in which Barbados would play the leading role would be a threat mm -hmm. to them. It was interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. They, yeah. They, and, and, and here, here, here. And I'm glad you asked this point because let me backtrack here mentally for a moment. When the Federation was in vogue, Bradley Adams, I, I forgot to mention, was the prime minister of the Federation. He was the only leader of any one of the territories who volunteered to go to Trinidad to head the Federation. Manley, Bosmani would never have done it. Eric Williams said, not me in a thousand years. Bradley Adams jumped at the opportunity. He goes down to Trinidad as premier of the Federation, and he was a fairly lazy fellow. Um, his supporters want to crucify me. I, I, don't give, I don't care. He was a fairly lazy fellow. Got up late on mornings, was never there for any early nine o'clock meetings. Want business to start at 10 and all of that. But he was always lecturing the delegation, the Federal House of Representatives, about how Barbadians and Barbados were superior to all of them, and Barbadians were about the smartest people in the entire world. And he claimed in a statement that the British told him that Barbadians were so bright, brighter than anybody else, and so on, including people in the dominions like Canada and New Zealand, and so on. And of course, these West Indians from the island islands hated that kind of of way of talking down to them, that they weren't smart. Only Barbadians were supposedly that bright and exceptional. An ideology of Barbadian exceptionalism that Barbadians at large internalize, which is focus, focus, bogus stuff. It's simply, as Hilary Beckel says in one of his works, that from early, the British did in fact set up uh, across the island a public education system in Barbados. We had three interesting confluences. Education, the Anglican Church throughout the island, and the constabulary throughout the island. The police, the church, okay, and public education. I attended elementary school in Barbados. I read it was like a, a military thing. Every morning you had to salute, and every afternoon you had to salute. You had to stand at attention and sing the British anthem, God save our gracious king and our gracious queen, all that kind of stuff. And um, that was drilled into us, almost in a military kind of way. And corporal punishment was extensive. I mean, teachers used to beat the hell out of you as a kid for any little infraction. I remember being early in my, I was about eight years of age, and every Friday you had an arithmetic test. And if the teacher gave you 20 problems to solve, and you got 19 correct, he hit you one lash, for the one you missed. So if you got 10 wrong, he's giving you 10 lashes with a strap. So as a kid at that age, you are traumatized all the time in school because they never cease to beat you. If you didn't know, they never worried about how and why you didn't know. If you had a learning disability, they just exact corporal punishment on you with a strap or a rod and always tearing your skin and running your skin and so on. It was a very brutal kind of thing across the island of Barbados. You cannot speak for the islands, but it was highly, highly violent. 
the way they conducted education, you know, at the time, top down. Now, in in that um, particular context, you know, of of the, of, of, of of change, um, <clears throat> we we had to face, you know, all kinds of strictures, all forms of control, but it was all designed to keep us in line with what I call the moral epistemology of British imperialism, the primacy of the British, the centrality of the British, the indispensability of the British, the know everything British and what have you. And you were made to feel that to be colonized was a wonderful thing. That was essentially, you know, how, how they uh, conveyed that kind of message, you know, to us as, as, as children. Now, um, with that, you know, in mind then, there was very little room left for creative thinking, for anything imaginative. And the emphasis on classical education uh, was such that the people who did well in those areas were the people who were considered the brightest and the best. And there was little emphasis on how you produce a laboring population with the kinds of skills necessary for the upliftment of, of the society. And of course, you had asked me a few que a question last time about the, um, the Technical Institute and, and so forth. And I tried to explain there, you know, that particular context. Now, here, then if you if you bear this in mind, you get a sense then of the what I might call the political constraints that were in place, the things that limited the scope and range of the opportunities that were available, and how and why uh, going forward, um, the thing was to make sure that British control was well managed, that things did not get out of control, so to speak, and that the political process of change would always unfold in manageable and predictable ways so that nothing untoward, you know, occur. So managing decolonization and managing independence from the center with the local figures playing a role consistent with British primacy was very much part of the hegemonic project that was implemented. And it was not surprising that in the British Caribbean, the decolonization experience and the transition to independence occurred the way it did. And it was always cited as so exemplary compared with other parts of the world, like parts of Africa, which not to be compared with the Caribbean because of large numbers of different ethnic groups in the colonial and imperialist project always sought to play off the various ethnic groups one against the other and left a, a foundation of turmoil and disharmony when those places became independent, extracted more in terms of wealth and resources and contributed very little to the upliftment and, and modernization. Now, I will digress for a moment here and say this. What I never knew, <clears throat> never understood in any way when I was taking European history and British history, that the pervasiveness of war and conflict in those areas was inseparable from the mobilization and centralization of territory and bringing disparate groups under one kind of centralized leadership. I mean, England was a rag tag of ethnic groups and tribes, as they were, might be called, at the time when the Tudors came to power in the late um, 
15th century. The Plantagenets and the Yorkists and all the wars, they're fighting and killing and fighting and killing. In the end, what do you have? Centralized government and the one. They go into Africa in an area that would become Nigeria. Do they seek to build that? No. They divide the Igbo from the Efik, from the Tim, from the Hauser, the Fulani, the Yoruba, and dominated in that way. And when they were forced to grant independence, there was no unification of anything. Wars played an extremely war, critical role in making states, and states made a lot of war. <clears throat> an argument that Charles Tilly makes, the late Charles Tilly makes very effectively in his book, um, looking at Europe from 1000 AD to 1992. You know, massive forms of bloodletting and killing and acquisition and centralization to build up the modern. But when it doesn't work in these other places like that, then they're viewed as or not being able to govern themselves. It's nonsense, you know, largely, right? I have digressed, but I hope I have said something there that is useful. What were the consequences of the Destroyers for Basis deal for Barbados in particular and the Caribbean in general? Okay. Now, the Destroyer for Basis deal was a World War II matter, a special kind of project. It was clear that in the war, the Second World War, things were not going good for the British. The Germans had even bombed part of, of, of the UK, part of London. And they were in certain circumstances. With the Americans who joined the war relatively late. And don't forget this, which might seem to be an aside. During the late 1930s, even as the war was, was breaking up, American leading family capitalists, the Harrimans, the Bushes, the Fords, the Rockefellers were trading with the Nazis, the Germans. They were until the trading with the enemy act was enacted and they had to stop. They didn't have problems trading with them because it was business. Now, for the, the British in the predicament that they were in at the time, the Americans would provide them with materiel, destroyers, naval ships in exchange for allowing the Americans to build military bases in certain British territories. Barbados was not integral to or central to that at all, because it was where after the war that a naval base was located in Barbados, largely for intelligence gathering purposes. It was not a base with a port to, as a home for naval fleet or anything like that. But in places like Antigua, places like Trinidad or so, you did have military setup at a place in Trinidad called Sharga Ramos, which became a pivotal point of conflict between Eric Williams and the Americans in the aftermath of Trinidad becoming independent, where Williams said, you need to close your base and get out of here. The Americans said, we don't plan to go anywhere. He says, no, you will move, you will leave. Now, the idea was this. From my reading, looking at archival material and some secondary sources, when the Americans established the military bases in the British West Indies, and I said Barbados was not a beneficiary of that. Now, when they did, here's what happened. Jobs were created for locals, okay? 
But the United States did not at any time move anywhere, moving the flag over the military at which Jim Crow was not prominent. You know, this highly white supremacist racialized project of the Americans, which has been so endemic. And the West Indians discovered that in working on military facilities run by the United States, that what they call racism was rampant. A lot of discrimination, a lot of white people talking down to them and calling them niggers and all kinds of stuff in their own country that they didn't appreciate. But since jobs were few and far between, and the pay, the pay on the basis was higher and better than any they've got for comparable work or anything like it, in other things, look, it's a gene. They don't call us whatever they want. We are better off. Hmm? It's a very pragmatic kind of response to a set of circumstances in which you don't exercise any clear control over your destiny in the colony. Now, um, some of the West Indians who had that experience had lived in the United States and said, you see, the same nastiness they do in America to black people to bring down to the Caribbean. Now, um, there was ambivalence then. <laughs> Nobody said, shut these bases down, we don't need them. But when the war ended, the United States began to restructure its military presence in the Caribbean and began to expand at Roosevelt Roads in Puerto Rico. And of course, they had a prominence down in the Panama Canal Zone area as well. So as that process began to expand after the war, the Americans found it unnecessary to maintain bases there. But the exchange was between Britain and the United States, not the colonies, because colonies could not were not allowed constitutionally to engage in international affairs. These are British possessions. Britain speaks for them in international affairs in that particular context of that moment. And subs substantively, then we have to keep in mind that since there was no delegation of authority to the territories in that regard, whatever Britain agreed to, to with the United States then devolved upon territories to implement because there were non-quote self-governing in the fundamental sense of the term, even as self-government was evolving very slowly. Now, therefore, <clears throat> I remember a former Barbadian leader who was a very progressive man um, in the 1940s and on. I never got to interview him for my book because his sight had failed at the time and his family said, no, we will not allow him to sit for an interview. Name was Winter Crawford, C R A W F O R D. I remember he went to Massachusetts at some point during that period and had an interview with the governor of Massachusetts. And the governor asked him about the attitude and outlook of people in the colonies toward Europe, Britain, and the United States. And he said, I'll tell you one thing for our people, it is bread and butter primarily at this moment. Tomorrow morning, if <clears throat> the Americans said, hey, we will integrate with you, bring you in and give you a He said, half the people get him a run overnight for it. They will go for it and they will forget about the British. And he was right. It would have happened. It could 
have happened. Not necessarily uniformly, but don't forget that you, by that time, in the went into the 50s and early 60s, you had large numbers of Jamaicans who had immigrated to the United States, went back to the First World War, and Barbadians. They had also put in place during <clears throat> and after the war the Brasero program for labor recruitment on a temporary basis to come into the United States from the islands to cut sugarcane, to pick fruit and vegetables and so forth, and they earn more, relatively speaking. So there's this kind of attitude as a to America as a place where you can go and you could improve the conditions of living. A lot of women came up as domestics. Men came on temporary employment programs and, and so forth. So that destroyed basis deal of it was for it lasted a limited period of time, was viewed by a lot of workers on the ground who participated in the territories where it was implemented as uh, something beneficial with all the warts, you know, and so on that came with it. And um, when it ended, it ended. And for Trinidad, the biggest controversy was the American base at Chagaramas. But a, a, a naval base was established in Barbados in the 50s. And the British and the, and the Americans worked it out and told the Barbados House of Assembly, which was elected, you cannot discuss this publicly. And the politicians were, they went along with that particular you know, with that particular strategy. And then in the 1970s, under the Barbados Labour Party government, under Tom Adams at the time, he said, we want the naval base back. Under the terms of the base, I went back and look at the terms from the 1950s. The Americans were supposed to <clears throat> pay taxes. They were, they were bringing a lot of heavy equipment and trucks and so on that the country the roads were not accustomed to it. They were to see the maintenance of the roads and then the improvement and what have you. And the Americans paid little or nothing. And when the time came to return the naval base to Barbados, the Americans ripped out everything they had brought in. You know, even they had a movie theater on the premises and they tore out the seats. <laughs> they left shells and what have you. They've always done a lot of horrible things in that regard, because of the pursuit of some hegemonic primacy and always seeing others as subservient to them because they can't afford to give the impression that they make concessions to or yield to those they view as weak and inferior, so to speak. What were Frank and Delano Roosevelt's stances and policies toward Barbados in particular and the British West Indies in general? How were his policies toward the Caribbean and the British West Indies, which impacted Barbados, similar or different to other American presidents? Okay. Now, this is an interesting question that has to be contextualized, put in a, what I call historical perspective, historicized, so to speak, periodized. Now, there was never a peculiar set of policies toward Barbados for the period. Keep in mind that until Barbados becomes independent, it's a colony, and negotiations are between London and Washington for all of the British territories. Eh? When the, the Americans were alarmed about anything happening in any one of the islands, they didn't go in that period, they didn't go to the premier or the political parties. They went to London and said, hey, we don't like what is happening in Barbados or in Jamaica or China. Do something about it. Because we don't want to have to go in there to do whatever you know we see to be in our interest. Okay. So the idea of Roosevelt's policies toward Barbados, there were none. 
of a peculiar nature to Barbados, so to speak. What I would say to you is that in the mid for in 1944-45, as the war was winding down, there was established an organization called the Anglo-American Caribbean Commission. This was between the Americans and the British. Notice the term Anglo-American, with Anglo study standing for the British, huh? Okay. And the view was the war was going to come to an end and there had to be a strategy for, quote, overseeing affairs in the Caribbean that were vital, quote, to the security interests of the United States and what would become the United Kingdom. Now, um, as I said to you earlier, and in each instance, in all of these cases, it was U.S.-British interaction until independence came. Now, under Roosevelt, as the war was winding down, when the Anglo-American Caribbean Commission was established, the idea was to promote the development of the Caribbean region and the territories, British and other territories, but especially the British. And this is a, that's a big question, Harry, because as you raise that with me, my mind then goes out in a number of directions. In the 1940s, 1944, as the UN system was being planned, the French took the initiative to establish a new relationship with their territories of Martinique and Guadeloupe and Cayenne, especially what is called French Guyana and the South American. And France redefined them as overseas departments of France, Departement du Tumer. Now, in other words, centralize the control, bring them in closer, because the French have some foreboding that with the establishment of the United Nations and the push for decolonization, they might begin to lose some control over their territory. So they're acting in a, in a, in a, in, in a, if you will, in a way that anticipates what might come and how to forestall or how to prevent the impact for them. So that you could then have elections in the French overseas territories in which delegates are elected and travel to France and sit in the Chamber of Deputies. So it's like if there's a department outside of France, I'm sorry, outside of Paris or Bordeaux, you know, that sends representatives to the French Chamber, then Martinique, Guadeloupe, Cayenne send representatives as well. They're not sitting in a home parliament at home. They're doing it from France. So that when decisions are made, they affect all of the departments within and across the seas. Then, by 1948, as there's a rumbling through the UN for self-government and decolonization, the Americans changed the status of Puerto Rico to a commonwealth of the United States, anticipating a possible rupture. The Dutch in 1954 set up a closer association of associated statehood with the territories like Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, Seb in the Caribbean. And the British, this point we discussed about the Federation, that's the British strategy. Okay? So that if you could have a federation of 10 islands with a central government, one government, you can't argue that there's not progress taking place. So all of this was to anticipate what would come under the UN rubric of decolonization. 
carried out in the 40s, Roosevelt's position through the Anglo-American Caribbean Commission, and by the time the war is coming to an end, the Americans and the British invited the Dutch and the French who had Caribbean territories to join the commission. And the name was changed from the Anglo-American Caribbean Commission to the Caribbean Commission. Hmm? Now, the big meeting was held in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands in 1944, and that's where hell broke out. The Americans, <laughs> there was a guy named Tossig, T-A-U-S-S-I-G, who was from the State Department and the chief representative for Roosevelt. And he had a conference with the British, like Philip Myring and others. He did raise him with that name at one point about colonialism and imperialism. And this man begins to tell Tossig about the virtues of colonialism and imperialism and how good they are for people. And Tossig said, wait, wait, wait. Says the American people, no, there's a place called India and there's a colony. They know it's wrong. They're colonies, they're rough, they got to go. The guy said, But you don't understand. He says, There's nothing to understand. And listen to this, Harry. <laughs> Stay with me. Tosik said, The Americans are a peculiar people. They have a way of arriving at facts without bothering themselves with at truth without bothering themselves with facts. <laughs> okay. This is words. They have a peculiar way of arriving at the truth without concern for facts. So don't talk to me about the benefits of imperialism. Well, the British accused the Americans of setting up Puerto Ricans to attack them and what have you. When that meeting was coming to an end and each afternoon one of the member countries sponsored a dinner, the French Ari were so broke, they didn't have money to pay for the dinner. And the British loaned them the money. And they had a conversation about the Americans. And they said the Americans are crude and vulgar. They're not civilized. They're not refined. They don't know how to behave. They're making us look bad. Yet we've done all these wonderful things, you know, to these colonized people, raised them up from their backwardness and all of that. And the conflict became what it was. Coming out of that, the Americans' position was, you French should give independence. You Dutch should give independence. And you British, you've got to give independence to these territories. Not because the Americans were so enamored and enthralled and figure people needed independence. The American position is, <clears throat> as long as you maintain colonialism, you're going to control the economic process. You're going to force them to operate within sterling, the British pound system, and so on, and keep us out of those markets. Free them and see what we will do. We will be in there all over you. And it began with bauxite in Jamaica and British Guyana. It happened in Haiti in the Jamaican Republic, the American president. It began much earlier with the Americans after they occupied Cuba, taking over the sugar industry and all of that, you know, and so on. Bigger questions indeed. But the Roosevelt thing that you raised was, he said, as the war was winding down, the United States is going to commit significant resources for the improvement, economic improvement and well-being of the Caribbean territories. Well, Ari, the Cold War broke out and they said, well, that is not our priority. The priority is communism and the Soviet Union, and now it is security, not economic development. And that became the guiding principle. 
So anything that was raised within the context of the post-war economic development of the Caribbean, British or any other part, was seconded and was made secondary to security issues. It happened for Central America, it happened for South America under the Rio Treaty, when the Latin American representatives assembled at Punta del Este from Uruguay, 1947, to talk about the inter-American system, and they started talking about the landlessness of the masses, how we need land reform, redistribute land. Says there were millions and millions of acres of idle land owned by big businesses that they were not using, and we should be allowed to redistribute. And that's why our Benz in Guatemala lost his government, man. I'll tell you, uh, the Americans said, we are not here to talk about any of that. Security, communism, and the discussion of land reform and so on ended. And when our Benz met with the U.S. ambassador and told him, Mr. Ambassador, the masses of people are hungry and destitute. He just need a little land reform. He said, I know a communist when I see one. And he said, what communist? What? But he says, that sounds like communism. And by the way, by the way, among the reasons the Americans opposed that, Alan Dulles, who was the brother of John Foster Dulles, the Dulles brothers were big investors in United in Central America. And anything that would talk about touching one acre of land that they had investments in was off the table. Hence, they got rid of our banks, brought terror and turmoil and pain and suffering into Guatemala with long-term consequences. That was an American project, largely. So there was nothing revolutionary or progressive about any of this on the part of the United States. They always put their national security against the progress of people. Can you tell us about John Connell? Why is he significant in the history of Barbados? Okay. I met John Connell. I interviewed John Connell for my second volume. Connell was the son of a carpenter. Alibara never allowed him to forget that his father was an ordinary carpenter. Bright boy, he grew up, went to school, went off, he studied law, became a lawyer. But during that period of agitation around federation, decolonization, <clears throat> and inter-independence, John Connell was part of a group that sort of rubbed Barrow the wrong way in his ribs, always needling and needling and needling. And he, Barrow didn't like it. You know, as much as he was a gentle kind of soul, there was a limit to his, to his tolerance. So he always focused on the people who seemed more prominent. Connell was among them. He was not unique in that sense. But he went off and he studied law, and he became a superior court judge in Barbados. When I interviewed him at his house in the parish of St. Philip, we had a very good meeting, a very gracious man. I'm so glad I met him. And he explained to me how, for all Barrow's claims about this, he was sort of an authoritarian personality. He did not like criticism. And for his part, as I mentioned, Barra's family owned sugar works and plantation. They were quite very well off. And he always told people <coughs> that he was born on a plantation. In other words, I come from wealth and property. That's my background. But he would not hesitate to come into the the poorest dwelling during campaigns, it did not have to be in his constituency, 
to to sort of gather with the people and create a popular sense of belonging. And some people said that Barrow was comfortable coming in to a home where people were, you know, sitting on the floor eating their dinner or they didn't have enough furniture to sit on chairs. And he wouldn't mind sitting on the floor and taking up a plate and eating too. Right. Now, when a leader does that, man, you can win the people over in large measure and tell them almost anything, especially when the masses are always looking for a deliverer, always looking for a messiah, and always looking for a man who is prominent, but who behaves like one of them. Hmm? And Barrow is able to create that kind of resonance with large numbers of the people. And hence, when he was nominated to become a national hero, there was no opposition across the board, across the political spectrum. He was seen as that unifying statesman who built or contributed to the building of a quality in a society that he found as one of his um, his 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 um, main supporters said he found Barbados a collection of villages and left it a unified nation. Maybe a debatable point, but surely there is some resonance there, something that makes sense that one would not, as it were, dismiss. So Connell was a figure of the the people in the 40s and 50s at the time who felt that. It was better to have maintained some kind of federation. They didn't like the fact that Barbados was going out on its own to become independent. But Barrow said he had reached the limit of his patience with what he called uh, the petty fogging leaders in the, the St. Lucia and the St. Vincent and the Dominican, the Grenada and so on, who couldn't see beyond their narrowness and the smallness of their countries and the fact that they would hardly be very viable on their own. But yet he took Barbados into independence. And at the time, <clears throat> the British said, we see no problems why Barbados cannot become an independent country. It's not like they pushed against it and Barbados fought for But Barrow also said at one point when it seemed that the process was moving slowly because the opposition Barbados Liberal Party sent a delegation to London accusing him of being a communist and that if you let Barbados become independent under him, it's going to be a terrible thing. He's going to take it into the socialist and communist path. None of this was true at all by any stretch of the imagination. <clears throat> but there was Barrow saying to them, I'm a decent man, I'm a good man, you can trust me, you have nothing to worry about. And Barrow said, if they don't give us independence by a certain day, we are going to declare independence on their own. And there was a guy by the name of Mr. Williams from the colonial office said, that is something I look forward to with relish. Let us see if he dares. Hmm? So Connell comes out of a context which was interesting and important, but it has to be put in the larger picture with his colleagues and, and that kind of movement at the time that thought a federal order was better for Barbados than not. <clears throat> and you had asked me a question earlier that I did not answer completely or Probably if you let me go back to it, because if sure. come back here, sure. why did St. Lucia and the others think Barbados would be a big issue? Sure. In their in their view, even Mr. Crawford, who was a very progressive man, they always saw Barbados as leading. They always saw Barbados as exceptional. They always saw Barbados as sitting atop the food chain, and the other islands resented it. And they felt that Barbados could not be trusted with their interests in that particular context. And all of them always felt that when the time came, 
to fight <clears throat> collectively for more investment from abroad and what have you, every Barbadian of substance said, yes, we will take the secondary, the manufacturing with the high value added and let the other islands take the low grade, low skill kind of work. Islands were saying, you think we are backwaters and just there for trash? No. And there was always a sense that Barbadians and Barbados felt they were better. And Barbadian leaders always contributed to the misconceptions that Barbadians were brighter innately than the others. It is hocus-pocus, it's bogus stuff. What the British did at one point in managing the territories was to contribute more to education in Barbados, it is true, produce a higher level of literacy in Barbados than in the other islands, and then populated the other islands as policemen and nurses and teachers. When I got to Washington, D.C. in 1967, Harry, Howard University, I was meeting West Indians from the British territories for the first time in my life. Grenada, Trinidad, Guyana, St. Lucia, Dominica, Jamaica, droves. A thousand West Indian students were at Howard University at that time. So it was hard to, uh, to escape or avoid if you were looking to I never did that. But the key point I want to make here is that every West Indian I met at Howard University had some kind of teacher from Barbados, some kind of policeman. So the moral epistemology of British imperials in spreading British power was to use Barbadians to spread the doctrine of imperialism and the other territories. And it worked. It worked quite effectively. So they would talk to me about, oh, my Latin teacher was a Barbadian man. He was rough. My math teacher, arithmetic teacher, was a cruel man from Barbados. Oh, I knew this cop in my country who would beat the hell out of people. He was from Barbados. Oh, this nurse who was the head nurse was from Barbados. From the Bahamas all the way to the Barbadians were sent out by the British. And therefore, the perception is Barbadians are so bright. Because if the people who come among you from other territories are in positions of some kind of leadership, what is your perception? They stand above yours. Huh? It was a very common kind of thing. But nobody understood fundamentally that the British has spent more on education to educate and to reduce the cost of administering the territories. This, they, they, they put more resources into Barbados, which became the central point for spreading out and going out to work. And Barbadians came to believe, even the ordinary Barbadians, that whenever Barbadians went away to America, they went to help people who couldn't help themselves. Huh? It's like they sit atop the human food chain. It's a myth, but it's part of myth-making. And myth is not the opposite of reality. Myth is when you take the institutional structures and arrangements that humans construct and produce in the process of reproducing themselves and set them up to take this place of those real concrete processes, right? That's where myth becomes into existence. It becomes normalized, institutionalized, and almost supplants the other stuff. It is part of it, a way of seeing the world rather than the opposite of the real. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your attention has gone since completing this work? Oh, well, largely I have been looking other types of projects. Um, I'm collaborating with a guy we will meet this evening at 7.30. We're talking about 
sovereignty and currency. I attended a conference in 2019 where that matter was discussed and I found it a fascinating topic to think about. It helps me to bring into focus some of the work I've done on sovereignty. I edited a book in 2015 called Globalization, Sovereignty and Citizenship in the Caribbean, extending beyond the British Caribbean, over into the French and the Dutch and, and Puerto Rico and so on. And uh, I've also been focusing more broadly on transnational, you know, capitalist integration, um, you know, on a world scale. And um, uh, have begun collaborating with some colleagues on the West Coast for a book, which is to be a critique of this work put out by the late Cedric Robinson that he calls Black Marxism. So there are these two, three different things I'm doing, you know, at the moment, and they are unfolding fairly neatly. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I'm tremendously lucky to have had this opportunity to learn from you and to listen to you and to be educated and to share your wisdom with a broader audience. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you very much, Ari. Thank you very much indeed. To to our listeners, I'm your host today on the New Books and Caribbean Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I'm in dialogue today with Dr. Hilborn Watson. He is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at Bucknell University. We have been discussing his new book, Errol Walton Barrow and the Postwar Transformation of Barbados, the Late Colonial Period published by the University of the West Indies Press, 2020. Thank you.